I want to talk today about tactical admissions in international litigation. And I think it's perhaps best to start uh, with a definition of what I mean by tactical admissions. By admitting a certain fact or point of law that is in parties, a party can put a court or tribunal into a position to rule on the basis of that fact or point of law without having to take a de decision on the disputed point. And of course, also without taking any evidence on that point. But such admissions are not unusual in international litigation. Uh, for example, a party may admit the relevant coast for the purpose of maritime delimitation. A party may admit that a certain rule forms part of customary international law. Or a party may admit that another party is or another state is a party to a certain treaty. If a fact or point of law is accepted only for the purposes of the legal proceedings and only with the aim to allow the tribunal to reach a decision favorable to the party making the admission, such an admission may be termed a tactical admission. Tactical admissions must be distinguished from ordinary even if arguments, where the party still leaves it to the court or tribunal to decide on whether the premise is fulfilled or not. I want to illustrate tactical admissions by going back to the now infamous South China Sea arbitration. A lot has been written about the case and it is fairly recent. So considering that this is an expert audience, I assume I don't need to give you any details of the case as such. So I want to go straight to the point. In its submission, number 10, the Philippines requested the arbitral tribunal to declare that, I quote, China has unlawfully prevented Philippine fishermen from pursuing their livelihoods by interfering with traditional fishing activities at Scarborough Shoal. Scarborough Shoal is a high tide feature that generates its own entitlement to a territorial sea. During the proceedings, the Philippines clarified that the activities alleged all occurred within the 12 nautical mile territorial sea. Finding that Scarborough Shoal had been a traditional fishing ground for fishermen of many nationalities, the tribunal declared that China had, through the operation of its official vessels in the area, 
from May 2012 onwards, unlawfully prevented fishermen from the Philippines from engaging in traditional fishing at Scarborough Shoal. As the tribunal, as you know, was not competent to pronounce on the question of sovereignty over the islands in the South China Sea, it tried to sidestep any decision or comment on sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal and the question in whose territorial sea the relevant incidents happened. The tribunal expressly stated that it did not have to rule on the question of sovereignty because it considered that the Philippines submission number 10 was based on one of two alternative premises. It then continued, and I quote, if on the one hand, the Philippines is sovereign over Scarborough Shoal, then the surrounding waters would constitute a territorial sea of the Philippines with all that follows from it. If, on the other hand, China is sovereign over Scarborough Shoal, the premise of the Philippine submission is that China has failed to respect the traditional fishing rights of Filipino fishermen within China's territorial sea. Now, this was a misrepresentation of the Philippines' position by the tribunal. The written and oral pleadings show that the Philippines based its submission solely on the second premise, namely that China was sovereign over Scarborough Shoal. For example, the Philippines stated, I quote, submission number 10 assumes that Scarborough Shoal is quod non and only for the purposes of these proceedings under Chinese sovereignty and that it is entitled to a territorial sea. The Philippines also declared that it challenged neither China's alleged sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal nor its nominal right to a 12-mile territorial sea. Admission of Chinese sovereignty was necessary because the Philippines argued that by preventing Filipino fishermen from fishing in the waters of Scarborough Shoal, China violated Article 2, Paragraph 3 of UNCLOS, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. According to that provision, a state exercises sovereignty over its territorial sea subject to this convention and to other rules of international law. So China could have violated Article 2, Paragraph 3 only in its own territorial sea. The Philippines argued that one of the other rules of international law was the customary international law rule that required a state to respect long and uninterrupted fishing 
by the nationals of another state in its territorial sea. The Philippines correctly based its argument on the premise of Chinese sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal, as there is no rule of customary international law that protects the traditional fishing rights of private individuals in the territorial sea of their own state against interference by foreign state. The arbitral tribunal also based its finding on the protection of traditional fishing rights of foreign nationals in a state's territorial sea. The tribunal stated, and I quote again, the international law relevant to traditional fishing would apply equally to fishing by Chinese fishermen in the event that the Philippines were sovereign over Scarborough Shoal as to fishing by Filipino fishermen in the event that China were sovereign. While this statement as such is undoubtedly correct, it does not cover the situation of the tribunal's first premise. Filipino fishermen fishing in the territorial sea of the Philippines. Filipino fishermen fishing in the territorial sea of the Philippines are indirectly protected against outside interference by the Philippines' sovereignty over its territorial sea. Individual fishermen do not have any separate right of protection under customary international law vis-a-vis -vis other states in the territorial sea of their own state. So while paying lip service to the first premise, the tribunal did not deal with it any further. In its reasoning, the tribunal seized only on the Article 2, Paragraph 3 argument and held that the rules of international law on the treatment of the vested rights of foreign nationals to fall squarely within the other rules of international law applicable to the territorial sea under Article 2, Paragraph 3. In fact, the tribunal based its decision solely on the second premise, namely that China had territorial sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal. The second premise was the only one I would, admit, I would submit within the tribunal's jurisdiction. As sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal was disputed between the parties, and the tribunal was not competent to rule on questions of sovereignty, it could not base its decision on the assumption of the incidents taking place within the Philippines territorial sea without prejudicing the question of sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal. Now this all may explain why the Philippines submitted for tactical reasons that the tribunal may assume that Scarborough Shoal is quod non and only for the purposes of these proceedings under Chinese sovereignty. This submission was in marked contrast to its general claim to sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal, 
For example, in a document published in April 2012, that is less than nine months prior to the institution of arbitration proceedings, the Philippines Department of Foreign Affairs stated that Scarborough Shoal was an integral part of the Philippine territory and that it exercised full sovereignty and jurisdiction over the rocks of Scarborough Shoal. It followed that it also had sovereignty over their 12 nautical mile territorial waters. The tribunal could base its decision on the second premise of Chinese sovereignty only because the Philippines accepted for tactical reason that China was sovereign over Scarborough Shoal. As this admission coincided with China's claim, the premise was no longer in dispute between the parties and that and thus could be taken for granted by the tribunal. The tribunal thus did not have to rule on the question of sovereignty, which anyway would have been outside its jurisdiction. On the basis of admitted Chinese sovereignty, the tribunal China as the coastal state had unlawfully prevented Filipino fishermen from engaging in traditional fishing in its territorial sea around the show. Let me now examine whether the Philippines tactical admission was in violation of its duty to act in good faith. The principle of good faith is a general principle of international law governing the relations between states. It requires states to perform their obligations and exercise their rights in good faith. UNCLOS has codified the principle in Article 300, requiring states parties to fulfill in good faith the obligations assumed under the convention and to exercise their rights recognized in the convention in a manner which would not constitute an abuse of rights. One of the obligations assumed under the convention is to settle any dispute between the parties concerning the interpretation or application of UNCLOS. The Philippines was thus under an obligation to conduct the South China Sea arbitration in good faith. My Swiss colleague Robert Kolb wrote in his entry on general principles of procedural law in the commentary on the ICJ statute that the principle of good faith develops particular legal effects whenever states have a qualified relationship of confidence with one another, such as in the context of an arbitral procedure. Others have said that in legal proceedings, the principle of good faith demands honesty and fairness. It prohibits the abuse of rights and the taking of unfair advantage. It also precludes states 
from adopting a position that does not reflect their genuine position for purely tactical reasons. Such conduct may deprive the proceedings of their value and undermine the integrity of the legal process. Let me quote Vice President Alfaro in his separate opinion in the Temple of Preavihar case. A state party to an international litigation is bound by its previous acts or attitude when they are in contradiction with its claims in the litigation. Inconsistency between claims or allegations put forward by a state and its previous conduct in connection therewith is not admissible. The primary foundation of this principle is the good faith that must prevail in international relations in as much as it as inconsistency of conduct or opinion on the part of a state to the prejudice of another is incompatible with good faith. Now, this was echoed more recently in the Chevron case by decided by an exit arbitral tribunal, which of course included a former holder of the Chichili chair at Oxford Vaughan uh, Lowe. The tribunal stated, and I quote again, the duty of good faith precludes clearly inconsistent statements deliberately made for one party's material advantage or to the other's material prejudice that adversely affect the legitimacy of the arbitral process. In other words, no party to this no party to this arbitration can have it both ways or blow hot and cold to affirm a thing at one time and to deny that same thing at another time according to the mere exigencies of the moment. A party to a dispute may generally concede a point of law or fact. However, if this is done only for the purpose of the proceedings and in contradiction to its established position in order to prejudice the other party, this will constitute an abuse of rights, which signifies a want of good faith. By basing its submission number 10 on an assumption that was apparently contrary to its long-held position on sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal, the Philippines undermined integrity of the arbitral proceedings. In fact, it presented the tribunal with an artificial rather than the real dispute in order to score victory. The true position of a party, however, cannot be ignored in assessing its case. Judge Mampuya said in the Diallo case that a court or tribunal cannot content itself with a purely tactical admission by a party playing cat and mouse with it. It is duty bound to decide the case on the basis of the party's real position. Otherwise, it risks losing its judicial integrity.
The International Court of Justice itself pointed out in the Northern Cameroons case that the court may be under a duty to decline to exercise jurisdiction in order to maintain its judicial character. The court, not the parties, must be the guardian of the court's judicial integrity. In light of the Philippines' display of bad faith, considerations of judicial propriety should have moved the arbitral tribunal to determine proprio motu that submission number 10 constituted an abuse of legal process and declare it inadmissible. This course of action is expressly foreseen in Article 294, Paragraph 1 of UNCLOS with regard to disputes referred to in Article 297. With regard to other disputes, the refusal to rule on a dispute can be based on the inherent power of any court or tribunal to dismiss an abusive application. Let me now examine the long-term effects of tactical admissions and what that means for the Philippines. The question of sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal was not addressed by the tribunal, either in the operative part of the award or in its reasoning. There is thus no question of the Philippines' tactical admission becoming binding on the parties to the dispute by virtue of the tribunal's decision. There is thus no question of res judicata. Legal effects, if any, must therefore result directly from the Philippines declaration itself. Now, the Philippines tactical admission could qualify as a binding unilateral declaration. The International Law Commission noted that states may find themselves bound by their unilateral behavior on the international plane. One of the best known examples of such behavior giving rise to a binding legal obligation is the declaration of Norway's foreign minister, Nils Klaus Elen, that the Norwegian government would not make any difficulties in the settlement of the question of Danish sovereignty over the whole of Greenland. When Norway later attempted to claim certain territories in Eastern Greenland for itself, Denmark brought a case before the Permanent Court of International Justice, arguing that the declaration constituted a binding admission by Norway that Greenland was subject to Danish sovereignty. The court ruled that the so-called Elon Declaration gave rise to an obligation to refrain from contesting Danish sovereignty over Greenland as a whole. The International Court of Justice, of course, confirmed that declarations concerning legal or factual situations may indeed have the effect of creating legal obligations for the state on whose behalf they are made. 
written and oral declarations during legal proceedings may give rise to a legally binding obligation on the part of the admitting state to refrain from contesting the admitted point of fact or law. However, such declarations are only legally binding if they manifest the state's intention or will to bind itself. The legal effect of such declarations is to be determined by taking account of their content and the factual circumstances in which they were made. In case of doubt as to the legally binding character of a declaration, a restrictive interpretation is called for. The Philippines made it quite clear that it had no intention of being bound to its admission of Chinese sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal beyond the South China Sea arbitration by adding the qualifier quot non and only for the purposes of these proceedings. It was obvious that the declaration was simply litigation tactics with no relation to its actual position. The admission thus could not give rise to an obligation to refrain from contesting Chinese sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal in the future. In other words, by its tactical admission, the Philippines did not debar itself from asserting sovereignty over the shoal itself. One may also think of the Philippines in future perhaps being stopped from denying Chinese sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal. Unilateral declarations may give rise to an estoppel by conduct. The principle prevents a state from contesting a position by reason of past inconsistent conduct. As you all know, estoppel is a general principle of international law that rests on the principle of good faith and consistency. It does not depend on the will of the state. It provides a basis for obligations other than the intention to be bound. Its binding force results from the state's conduct. Estoppel may bind the state to a position previously taken with regard to a factual or legal situation. That is, create an obligation not to take a position inconsistent with its previous position. Estoppel thus, at least in principle, could bar the Philippines from taking, contradictory, from taking a contradictory position on the question of sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal. The ICJ has identified at least two essential elements required by estoppel. First, there must be a clear and unequivocal on state forms of estoppel in municipal law or in international law does not distinguish between representations 
regarding declarations of law. The Philippines Declaration thus would clearly cover representations on questions of territorial sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal. Second, the other state must have relied upon the representation to its detriment or to the advantage of the state making the representation. The element of reliance requires that the state changed its position or did something it would not have done but for the representation. A state does not rely on a representation if it has no reason to change its behavior. The Philippines declaration that Scarborough Shoal was quad non and only for the purposes of these proceedings under Chinese sovereignty was by no means a clear and unequivocal admission of Chinese sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal, which would allow China to place any reliance on that declaration. There is also no indication that China in reliance on the Philippines admission changed its position on Scarborough Shoal to its detriment or suffered some prejudice in relation, in reliance on such admission. In fact, China's position on Scarborough Shoal was the same after the arbitration as it was before. The conditions for an estoppel were thus not met. Consequently, the Philippines is not stopped from claiming against China sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal or disputing Chinese sovereignty. One may, also, one may also ask whether the Philippines admission uh, could have created legitimate expectations on the part of China. It has been said, for example, that the principle of good faith protects the legitimate expectations of a state that acts in reliance upon the representation of another state. Now, as you all know, the ICJ ruled recently in the case concerning obligation to negotiating access to the Pacific Ocean in 2018, that there exists in general international law, no principle that would give rise to an obligation on the basis of what would be considered a legitimate expectation. So outside international investment law, there is no such uh, concept of legitimate expectation internationally. In any case, in our case, in the South China Sea arbitration, there is no indication that China relied on the Philippines admission. This brings me to the most promising, but also the most controversial concept, the rule of preclusion of inconsistent positions. The rule operates within the domain of judicial proceedings. It has a long history in regard to the conduct of dispute resolution, including arbitration under international law. Under the rule, a state party to legal proceedings is precluded from taking a legal position 
inconsistent with that it has previously taken on the same issue. The rule reflects Latin maxims such as venire contra factum proprium, no one may set himself in contradiction to his own previous conduct, and allegans contraria non audiendus est, one making contradictory statements is not to be heard. For example, in the case of the SS Lisman, the claimant had admitted in the course of the judicial proceedings in the British Price Court that the seizure of goods and the detention of the ship were lawful. In the subsequent arbitration, the arbitrator held that the claimant was precluded from claiming that these acts now were unlawful. The rule of preclusion of inconsistent positions is often referred to by the saying that a party to legal proceedings cannot blow hot and cold at the same time. This principle can be traced back in English case law to the 18th century. In 1862, the Court of Exchequer referred to the broad principle that a man shall not be allowed to blow hot and cold, to affirm at one time and to deny at another, saying that the principle has its basis in common sense and common justice. And whether it is called a stopple or by any other name, it is one which courts of law have in modern times most usefully adopted. The rule of preclusion of inconsistent positions has also been referred to as judicial estoppel based on the terminology used in US municipal law. Under the US doctrine of judicial estoppel, a party is equitably barred from asserting to its position taken in earlier judicial proceedings. While the substance of the rule in international law and in US municipal law is the same, the terminology of judicial estoppel is confusing. The preclusion of inconsistent positions is an independent category of inconsistent conduct which does not give rise to an estoppel stricto sensu. Commenting on the fur seal arbitration between the United States and the United Kingdom, where the British government had successfully pointed to inconsistent positions of the United States on the question of alleged British recognition of Russia's claims to exclusive jurisdiction over seal fisheries in the Bering Sea, Arnold McNair, later Lord McNair, stated, there was some advantage in showing inconsistencies in the positions of the other state, but that this was not a stopple by name, but that it showed that international jurisprudence had a place for the principle that a state cannot blow hot and cold. Allegans contraria non audientus est. 
Unlike estoppel stricto sensu, preclusion of inconsistent positions does not require detrimental reliance on the position previously taken by the other party to the proceedings. Rather, a state is precluded from taking inconsistent positions by virtue of the principle of good faith alone. The rule of preclusion of inconsistent positions is considered a general principle of law in terms of Article 38, Paragraph 1c of the ICJ statute, grounded on good faith. The purpose of the rule of preclusion of inconsistent positions is to protect the integrity of the judicial process by precluding successive contradictory statements. Parties are barred from deliberately changing positions according to the exigencies of the moment or from asserting contradictory positions for tactical gain. While the rule of preclusion of inconsistent positions has been frequently invoked by states before, and applied by international courts and tribunals, there seem to be no clear criteria for its application. The US Supreme Court identified several factors which typically inform the decision of the courts on whether to apply the US doctrine of judicial estoppel in a particular case. First, a party's position must be clearly inconsistent with its earlier position. Second, the party must have succeeded in persuading a court to accept that party's earlier position so that judicial acceptance of an inconsistent position in a later proceeding would create the perception that either the first or the second court was misled. Absent success in a prior proceeding, a party's later inconsistent position introduces no risk of inconsistent court determinations and thus poses little threat to judicial integrity. A third consideration is whether the party seeking to assert an inconsistent position would derive an unfair advantage or impose an unfair detriment on the opposing party if not precluded. I would suggest that these factors may equally serve as guidance for international courts and tribunals when deciding on whether a state party is precluded from taking a certain position in successive judicial proceedings. While promising, the Philippines' tactical admission of Chinese sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal does not bar the country from subsequently taking the position in judicial proceedings, either against China or any other state, that it is sovereign over the shoal. First, this position would not be clearly inconsistent with its earlier position in the South China Sea arbitration that Scarborough Shoal was, quod non, and only for the purposes of these proceedings, under Chinese sovereignty.
While the Philippines may actually have gained an unfair advantage by its tactical admission in that arbitration, the tribunal did not expressly base its decision on that admission so that there would be no question of judicial acceptance of an inconsistent position in a later proceeding. Let me now turn to the last possible effect of tactical admissions. Tactical admissions may play a role in the consideration of evidence. While a previous admission will not automatically lead to a reversal of the burden of proof in later proceedings, inconsistent positions may weaken a state's case on grounds of inconsistency. For example, it has been held that there is a general rule of evidence that contradictory statements of an interesting party should be construed against that party. It has also been suggested that if there is controversy about the facts which constitute the subject matter of the admission, then the admission is of significance in showing the likelihood of the truth of the facts covered by the admission. So while the Philippines tactical admissions of Chinese sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal uh, does not prevent it from claiming sovereignty over the shoal itself, it may make such claims more difficult to prove in future proceedings. So where does that leave us with regard to the admission of Chinese sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal? As just shown, the admission will not legally bar the Philippines from claiming sovereignty over the shoal in future negotiations or legal proceedings with China. However, the tactical admission produced and rather unintended negative consequence for the Philippines. The admission prompted the tribunal to declare that, I quote, China has unlawfully prevented fishermen from the Philippines from engaging in traditional fishing at Scarborough Shoal. While this was widely hailed as another victory for the Philippines, the declaration actually, or this declaration actually put the Philippines on the back foot, both legally and politically. Prior to the South China Sea arbitration, the dispute between the Philippines and China was all about territorial sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal. The Philippines never asserted traditional fishing rights of Filipino fishermen within 12 nautical miles of Scarborough Shoal. This is explained by the fact that an assertion of such rights was not necessary because all Filipino fishing activities would have been protected against Chinese interference by Philippines sovereignty over the shoal and its territorial sea. With the tribunal's ruling on submission number 10, the public's perception of the dispute over Scarborough Shoal shifted from Philippines territorial sovereignty to traditional fishing rights for Filipino fishermen. The media noted after 
the tribunal published its award, that the tribunal had reaffirmed Manila's sovereign rights over several reefs in the Spratly Islands, while at the same time noting that the tribunal had declared Scarborough Shoal a traditional fishing ground for Filipinos and Chinese, as well as fishermen from many other countries. After the tribunal ruling, the Philippines government started to implement restrictions on fishing in the 12 nautical mile territorial sea around Scarborough Shoal. On the 3rd of August, 2016, the Philippines presidential spokesperson declared that Scarborough Shoal was only for artisanal fishing, not for commercial fishing in the 12 nautical miles around Scarborough Shoal. China seemed to be quite happy with the ruling on submission number 10. In October 2016, it was reported that for the first time since 2012, Chinese Coast Guard ships allowed Filipinos to fish again in the waters inside Scarborough Shoal. As the dispute could now be portrayed as a question of the exercise of traditional fishing rights in China's territorial sea, there was no need to exclude Filipino fishermen any longer in order to assert Chinese sovereignty over the shoal. While the tactical admission provided a basis for the tribunal's declaration that, China's that China unlawfully prevented fishermen from the Philippines from engaging in traditional fishing at Scarborough Shoal, it came at a high price. Not only were the Philippines fishing rights downgraded from exclusive sovereign rights of a state to non-exclusive traditional rights of private individuals. But the tribunal's ruling also suggested that these traditional rights existed in the waters of another state, thereby at least implicitly confirming China's claim of sovereignty over Scarborough Shoal. Thank you very much.